right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another round of the edition of the Extra Rounds podcast. It seems weird to say round. Another episode of the Extra Rounds podcast. Uh, We're basically roughly a year away from when we launched the podcast, which is a a nice little milestone. I think it was right after UFC 200 that we we launched. uh, So definitely during July. Um, the Big Ten Bowl event this weekend was UFC 230 through 213, so we're going get to in, get into that. Uh, we won't really talk about Floyd Connor this week just because there's still three more press conferences to go. <laughs> so, like, let's wait and look at the body of work at all, even though it was very exciting. And then later in the show, we have Bellator heavyweight Justin Wren calling in to talk uh, all things MMA, Bellator, and about his work with Fight for the Forgotten. So uh, he should be calling in in about 10 minutes. So look forward to that. But first, let's, let's go back to fight week. There's a lot to happen. It's the big temple event. But did it live up to expectations? It seems like everybody this month, at least, is looking forward towards UFC 214. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to live up to expectations when you lose the, 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 the main event, right? But still three good cards in that fight week. Um, and uh, certainly what ended up being the main event at UFC 213 ended up being a really solid fight. So yeah, I mean you you can't when you lose when you lose the title fight the one real title fight that you have in that card and you lose it the day of you lose a lot of steam and a lot of momentum but great action on the on the cards themselves the uh, the Whitaker Romero fight was incredibly intriguing it was mm. back and forth going going into the fifth round it was split two two mm-hmm. which I think is all you can hope for going into the fifth yeah. round you don't want to see somebody you know won three rounds and seeing if the other guy can get it like it's about as thrilling of a finish yeah. as you can get. And it was a pretty close roundup, I think, until two minutes or so left sure. in the round when, um, who was it? I think Whitaker got the takedown, if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, and he was, he was just stuffing all of them at that point. And then, yeah, then he ended up on top, did some real damage on top after he was hurting them on the feet. So, yeah, that was uh, – a you know, I was you were you were down there. I was just watching TV, and even, even in the room I was in, it, it really it upped the energy level. Um, it was definitely a great – fill-in for a main event about as good as you can expect the the cool thing from where i was sitting is that you could see through the cage uh and see michael bisping who was huh. cage side sitting next to dana white watching it and there was an interesting moment during the fight when he actually ripped a cuban flag yeah. in between rounds yeah. and it seemed like it already seemed like uh romero was running out of gas but it kind of coincided with a turning point mm. in the fight for romero so you could maybe say that there was a little bit of a mental factor there that that mm. actually played a part in but you know, what was your reaction when you saw him rip the flag? So I didn't see it actually, Mike. I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't see that happen in real time. I saw UFC Europe's official account uh, tweet it out. And there's a lot that goes into you've got to you've got to you've got to grab it. You've got to chop it up. You know, when a social media team does this, there's, it's not just like you know they're doing it an official way in a licensed way. There's there's a lot of work that goes into that. Um, so to speak, it all happens pretty quick, but you know, there's a team dedicated to that and they did it. So they made a concerted effort to show Michael Bisbing, uh, tearing up the Cuban flag afterward, Joe Romero talked, you know, obviously about how that made him feel, how that was inappropriate. And, and, you know, um, and he made, he's since made his, his own video of him doing a, a similar thing, uh, with the British flag, or at least a picture of Bisping holding a British flag. So my initial viewing of that was seeing uh, the UFC's completely callous and ridiculous tweet about it because they had, oh, Bisping, I think was the copy in the tweet, and they had, like, the the crying by laughter emoji. And, you know, not that I engage in Twitter beefs, but I wrote them back that it was just – it was very irresponsible uh, and callous of them to do it. Um, and, you know, but I think that just speaks to a lot of things. I remember being in the room at the post-fight press conference at UFC 199 a little over a year ago in Los Angeles – 
in the LA Forum uh, in Inglewood, and <clears throat> Bisping on UFC stream broadcast, if you will, uh, called Luke Rockhold a, a faggot, and nothing happened to him for using that hate speech. Nothing is going to happen to him for ripping up someone's flag. He's he's also a professional broadcaster. Like it's just it's just a weird thing for them to be doing. Like everyone's human. Everyone makes mistakes. But for the UFC to make uh, uh, like light of this stuff is a little bit. It's 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 stupid. I, and I think fight again. Fighters will do different inappropriate things to get in each other's heads and all that type of stuff. Uh, but then it's it's especially weird if the promotion is corporately owned by a company that is publicly traded just allows this type of stuff to go on between Fox and the UFC you would think someone would would start reining in Michael Bisping and say hey let's uh stop ripping flags up and calling people uh, homophobic epithets you know so it was yeah I was shocked I didn't see it live Uh, I saw it uh only on Twitter and I was like oh geez these guys are tone deaf did you see what do you think of Romero's response, though? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's you know the only the only good thing I could say about Romero's response is that uh, it was in response to something that was done before, uh, and also there's no imperial history of of Cubans going out and, and conquering three quarters of the world in brutal fashion like there was in Britain. So that's about the best I can say is this, you know, there's a, there's a power disparity historically speaking between the two countries. So maybe that makes it a little. Uh, better but yeah it's disrespectful as well right like only the best thing i could say about it is that he didn't do it first um he looked cooler doing it that's for sure <laughs> as he, he usually does he always too. he sounds cooler saying everything man he, he's, he's it's the, pretty cool the, i obviously couldn't understand the beginning half of the video but at the end when he says like i am your big ticket boy i was like yeah Seems like it could be in a movie. Uh, yeah, a movie and those two line. may end up still fighting you never know the middleweight yeah. division is not sorted out i don't know how injured robert whitaker is Right, so you don't, um, so you don't think that this resolved the the uh, middleweight picture. Obviously, Gegard no. Mousasi has left the UFC, yeah. so that kind of helps clear up the picture <laughs> right. a little bit. Because then you have Chris Weidman who's coming off a loss, Jacare's yeah. coming off a loss, Yol's coming off a loss now. So it seems like, aside from George St. Pierre murking the waters, if and, and that's whatever big, happens with him, it's a big if there. Yeah, right. I think GSP and Whitaker's health are the things that. That will that make it unclear still. You know, it should have cleared it up. So if Whitaker is injured and he can't go, yeah. and then George St. Pierre beats Michael Bisping, mm-hmm. like let's so let's say Whitaker is injured and then GSP fights Bisping, okay, and then let's say Bisping huh. loses, right? Does GSP then win the interim interim middleweight title? <laughs> yeah, maybe the interim interim like featherweight title too. I think it becomes featherweight champion and flyweight champion as well. <laughs> Such a stupid mess with their interim tags right now. As much as I'll criticize Michael Bisping for things that I think he should be criticized for, it was ridiculous that there was an interim title. He he fought far less than a year ago. Like there, that, there should be no degradation or stripping of that of that title. Uh, now. And the others, and on the other hand, Dan Henderson should be the world champion because he beat up Michael Bisping and got screwed in decision, in my opinion. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it's weird. I don't think there's any real closure uh, to this. I mean, look at the things in the last two months. We Yoel Romero was gonna fight Michael Bisping next. Then it was George Champier is gonna fight. They had a press conference for that. Like, there's things can change so fast. I don't know what's gonna happen. There's great fighters in the division. There's less great fighters than there used to be now that they let another top five guy go, Musasi, uh, which is big becoming a pattern they're letting it happen in welterweight with Rory mcdonald lawrence larkin is the top 10 guy letting it happen in light heavyweight the last few years with phil davis uh and uh ryan bader it seems like every time it happens it's like this is the biggest name yet yeah and it's like once again it's getting the, worse you know bader was 
ranked guy. Lorenz Larkin was a big arguably a the big number guy. one contender. Ryan Bader was arguably yeah. you know. Well, and then you know Gegard Mousasi, five fight win streak, top five guy. Arguably two or one there. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a good look, man. And it's very different than what the UFC did. Do you? I remember a time as a fan, and then you know, I shoot even as a as a working journalist because Pride was going strong when I when I started in in some ways. Um, that the UFC worked so hard, like their avenue to become the number one MMA promotion in the world, because they were not uh, for a period of time, was to, to really just try to collect and get back in, in some ways from Japan a lot of their a lot of their talent and say we're gonna have we're gonna build the most strongest divisions. That was a big big thing, and it helped them I think with saying we're a credible sport to get sanctioning and stuff like that. And they just don't have that ethos anymore. I they think it's don't like care. A perfect storm of the new ownership and trying yeah. to sort out the financials and then Bellator getting this investment. It's like, I think you're right. It's a, it's a t- interesting timing of ships going yeah, up, but I think it's right. Um, let's, let's uh, talk about Amanda Nunes a little bit. Yeah. Justin Wren, uh, the big pygmy Bellator heavyweight supposed to be calling in um, sometimes shortly. So we'll just keep talking until he gives us a ring. Cool. But Amanda Nunes was going to fight Valentina Shevchenko in the main event for the Bantamweight title or defending her Bantamweight title. That fight fell out hours before it was scheduled to happen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's, there's been a lot of mixture. There's people who, you know, fans clamoring for her to be uh, stripped of the title. <laughs> Others defending. And it seems like, for the most part, there's a lot of fans who feel that way, not necessarily media people. Sure, sure. And that's fine. They, they feel like robbed. They bought the pay-per-view or whatnot. I I know some people hit me up and bought the pay per view not real like not having heard mm-hmm. the news and yeah. were upset about that. Sure. Um, and then there's other people who think that you only have the opportunity to make money, champion money, when you're the champion, mm-hmm. and you can't afford to go in when you're not 100 percent because if you lose that, you're back down to like look at T.J. Dillashaw right. for instance, example, right. back down to 50 and 50 or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah that might your be Reebok money goes back to five thousand. Right. And, 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 and you know you look at right that too. And then you can look at, um, like, Michael Johnson was made less than ju- the debuting Justin Gaethje. Not yeah. that Justin Gaethje's not worth it. Michael Johnson is as well. Right. Yeah, yeah totally. So when you think about it in that term, it's like they need to protect Yeah. Them. So what, 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 is your, what is your response? What should be the fallout of this? Uh, I think they should reschedule it and fight then, and that's really all there is to it. I mean, I, we have a really strangely callous culture in, 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 um, in MMA even compared to boxing, which is a brutal, callous sport uh, and a very cruel sport. You know, v- fighters, main event fighters, um, on top of cards and box boxing cards that have way worse undercards than any UFC card has ever had. Um, headliners drop out all the time. Sometimes they strain a ligament. Sometimes they break a bone. Sometimes they get cut. Sometimes they have a, a cold or a flu, and they drop it all the time. And what happens is they reschedule, and then they fight later. And everyone stays alive, and no one dies, and all the entitled fans in the world go on with their really wonderful lives that make them so angry at fighters who work hard. Uh, I, I don't know. It's just, it, it, it sucks that it happened, right? Right. And it sucks for no one worse than Amanda Nunes. Because I guarantee you, Valentina Shevchenko, by weighing, uh, making weight, at least got her show money. It's absurd that we still have to talk about show and win money. She at least made that. Amanda Nunes who probably trained for the last three months for this, who doesn't get a salary, who doesn't get uh, real year-round uh, health care, who doesn't have a pension just like any other fighter, got paid nothing after working for three months. Unless you think this is some elaborate ruse where she hasn't been training for three months and she wanted to get attention. Like what? It, just, it hurt no one more than Amanda Nunes. It sucks for everyone, and it sucks the least for fans because they have no skin in this game other than 
whatever they paid for the card. Uh, a, Saturday a, a, night plans. Yeah, and you, and they could get a refund, and people at the, you know they 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 could get a refund. They could also get a refund if you bought tickets to the arena. Like it's just it it, it sucks really bad for Shevchenko. If I was Shevchenko, I'd be very mad at Amanda Nunes. She's in a position to to feel that type of entitlement. I we we're not though, in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's interesting, but it you know, I think they they're targeting the UFC 215 in Edmonton, so it's all going to work out. But uh, we have Bellator heavyweight Justin Wren on the line. Justin, how are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you guys? Doing great. Doing, well. Mike. Doing well. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to talk to us. Oh man, thank you guys for having me. This is uh, this is really good. You're one of the uh, the busiest men in MMA with everything you have going on <laughs> in the cage and outside of the cage. Uh, fun, before we get into this, uh, I just got to let you know, Elias, that we are both, Justin and I, Dallas, Texas, Catholic school kids. Look at that. So we, we have this bond. We went, we went to rival schools and we, <laughs> we didn't know each other uh, back then, but we, we have some mutual friends That's in cool. Common. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that was uh, back in the day. I don't even really remember back then anymore. <laughs> right. It seems so long ago. It's scary to think about. One of the first, and this is Elias and Justin, I never got a chance to, to talk with you, but I've been following your, your multiple career. So I'm really excited when Mike told me uh, he booked you. Well, I actually, one of the things I wanted to ask you about first was going back in the day, I'd, I'd read, and you know, correct, correct me at any point if this is wrong, I'd read some accounts of um, how you – you started wrestling as a kid, and then how you kind of, on uh, short notice, a lot of ways to kind of fell into to MMA. Uh, and prior to wrestling, you were, you were bullied a lot as a kid. I, I'm curious if, if that's true. If you kind of fell into wrestling, and then later into MMA, like why? Why did what made you stick with with them? Like, did you did they make you did they help your self esteem? Did they make you feel like you could defend yourself uh, after being bullied as a kid? Like, what what really stood out to you? What made you love them enough to to stick with them? Man, uh, I think you're hitting on a lot of good points. Um, yeah, I grew up getting really heavily bullied, and when I found the UFC, I wouldn't say that I stumbled upon falling in love with the sport of MMA, mm. um, and I didn't stumble upon wrestling so much, So, but I did stumble upon my first three fights. Mm. Um, so all of them on uh, the first two on a day's notice, and the third one, I was in the crowd. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was, uh, so, so I did stumble into my MMA career first three fights, but, um, yeah, you know, seeing the MMA fighters or UFC two through nine, I was saving up my allowance actually to buy, uh, I guess that's not, not, uh, not too relevant, but I was going to buy a BB gun. And instead I stumbled upon these VHS tapes at this flea market. And, um, as you see like two through nine and I just fell in love with it looking at the, the you know the sumo versus boxing or taekwondo versus jiu-jitsu or whatever it was all the different mixes and matches and um i think i was drawn to it because i have two reasons one the human chess match of it and then i loved that and then um the second thing was i was like man uh, i bet these guys don't get bullied <laughs> but these guys uh, know how to defend themselves and i was really drawn to that because at that specific time it was the height of all the bullying in school um, my eighth grade year. And so, yeah, I just, I started pursuing wrestling. I only won one match by one point in my first, uh, year and a half of wow. wrestling. Um, so I, I wasn't, wasn't the best by any means, but I stuck with it and I had great coaches, uh, that believed in me. And I think I was working out. Um, so you're asking if it, 
gave me some confidence where I just knew I would know how to defend myself. And second, like I was around for the first time a team that, uh, you know, needed, I mean, they need the heavyweights in wrestling because uh, a lot of times the matches come down to that. And I let them down for the first year and a half, uh, pretty much every time. Um, and then the next year I was like, you know what, they're going to be able to depend on me. I'm going to win some matches. Uh, and if it comes down to me, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll make sure that I pull through. And so it was just a kind of a outlet and a place where I fit in. And um, then I became real successful at it uh, and won a couple of national championships. I was coached by two Olympic gold medalist high school coaches. Um, that, well, I guess I say that because there was only, there was no other Olympic gold medalist coaching high school at that time, I don't believe. Right. And so uh, I had two at the same school. And so um, it was a huge blessing. It was an awesome opportunity. And yeah, then got into MMA as quick as I could at 19 years old. Uh, I was going around and I mean, I was making all the stops I could going out to extreme couture or ATT or the military guys. And um, I was helping fighters in their corner or at least prepare for their fights through wrestling. And then sometimes I'd be invited to, you know, I was living at the Olympic training center. So these guys are like, kind of drawn to that knowledge yeah. of wrestling. Um, and then when I went to corner guy, uh, he had a terrible staph infection on his, uh, in his, in his, uh, his quad. Um, and it was going into a steamer. Uh, and so he had to have like IV antibiotics. They're even talking, there's a potential of amputation. Like it was a terrible staph infection. And so I was the guy that was picked to go tell uh, at the weigh-ins uh, that he couldn't fight and then his opponent started talking trash he was a heavyweight the promoter had watched me wrestle he's like hey why don't you get in there with him tomorrow <laughs> i'm like what <laughs> i've never taken an amateur fight and they're like it's okay it's oklahoma we don't have to use regulations here <laughs> um <laughs> yeah which now i live here so it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's funny but uh um uh, i've only been here for four or five months but uh yeah it was just stumbled right in on it uh, loved it. Um, the guy was a striker, so and I was a wrestler. So the promoter was like, "You stand up with him, you're gonna get knocked out. He's got a kickboxing gym. So, uh, but if you take him down, you know, you'll you'll beat him up." And so that's kind of what I did. Second time, kind of the same thing. Third time, I was in Iowa at the uh, Ames County Fairgrounds in outside Iowa State, and was in the crowd promoter came in said that an opponent didn't show up that night allowed the heavyweight to come in there talk about uh how uh he came to fight his guy was scared didn't show up he's sorry to his fans but if there's anyone in the arena that's over 206 pounds uh if they want to fight then then just stand up and raise your hand and uh, i was three beers in so i looked at my friend my friend's like what are you doing and i'm like I'm going to fight tonight. So uh, I was wearing a button-down shirt, some jeans, some dress shoe type shoes, and uh, and had to borrow shorts, had to borrow – oh, actually, they had an unboiled mouthpiece um, <laughs> that I put in. 
and I had to borrow a light heavyweight that had a three-round fight. I had to borrow his, his jock strap and wear it on the outside of my boxers. So it was pretty disgusting. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, Nate Diaz's famous quote where he's always like, if somebody says they're the toughest guy in the room, I'm the first one to step up and say, let's see. But, but also, you mentioned, you mentioned your struggles with uh, wrestling in high school early on before you kind of really figured things out. What, was, were you ever tempted to give up, or did, you know, what kept you going? Well, yeah, I was, I was definitely tempted to – to give up but there was just something inside me that was like this is it was almost all i had all i got so um but then also i loved i loved the sport i loved rooting my teammates on i love seeing my coach's passion i love seeing just these guys achieving stuff and um i mean i was on a really good team surrounded by state champions guys pursuing the national championship and um and i wanted to be one of those guys i had a kenny monday um who you know has fought mma and uh just a couple times but also just uh i don't know just a legendary wrestler um not just not just in the states i i've wrestled overseas and moscow and st petersburg and uh he had standing ovations just walking into the arenas so he's a legendary guy and he was telling me you know write down your goals you know, Justin, I promise you by your senior year, I'll make you a state champion. Um, and he made me a two-time national champion. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I would say that it was, it was rough in the beginning because uh, I had a guy, uh, this was about six or eight months in my first tournament outside of the state of Texas. Um, and he was laughing as he was pinning me uh, and I couldn't do anything about it. Um, and another guy kneed me in the nose, uh, almost pride style. You know, he's turned me over to half Nelson and threw a knee. Uh, he, he told me before I got on there that I didn't deserve to be on the mat with him. And I was like, oh boy, how's this one going to go? Um, and so, uh, but then I just, I would, uh, I would be, I think what I learned through wrestling is to not be timid or tentative, to not take a back seat. And um, because that's what I was doing. I was going out there and I was being very hesitant I was second guessing myself and I was telegraphing the moves before I would, I was showing them what I was going to do before I did it. Mm. And so they'd be able to counter very easily. And if not that, they would at least be able to defend. And so, um, yeah, wrestling definitely, I I don't know, is kind of a saving grace in my life where very depressed, dark uh, place, even uh, thinking about suicide and different stuff. And wrestling is the thing that kind of gave me hope. Justin, I uh, I've read as well about uh, before you kind of em- embarked on spiritual journey, and then which culminated in in so much of the uh, the work you do outside of the ring um, and all over the world, and and, and um, that that you had struggles with uh, with drugs and with alcohol, and, and I know you went through a serious injury that eventually like required surgery when you were uh, we were wrestling. I, did did your struggles there? Did it start with that with like se- with self medicating? Did it was it later from like the was it the the trappings of being a, a an elite athlete and the parties and and stuff like that? Or, or, or you like when did that kind of when did that that struggle um, kind of start for you? Would you say? Uh, I I would say both things that you talked about. Well, the the injury is what began the uh the battle with addiction um and made me spiral back down into like a depression like i had 
whenever I was like 13 years old and mm. clinically diagnosed with depression from the bullying and stuff. And uh, then, um, so the injury set it off. And then whenever I got into fighting, that, that made it skyrocket also because, uh, not because of fighting, uh, but sure. because I was young and dumb and surrounded by people that, you know, I didn't ever really have to pay for the drugs. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was, it was a culmination of both. And I would say that, you know, getting injured, I had the, my elbow that had snapped and dislocated and uh, broke and tore the ulnar collateral ligament completely. And I had damage to the ulnar nerve. Um, still, sometimes my three fingers from the middle to the pinky on the right hand uh, fall asleep on me. And so um, it's uh, so I had to wait four months to get like a really great doctor to to do the surgery. My insurance company, even though I was living at the Olympic Training Center, mm-hmm. you know, they wanted me to go to a, a ankle doctor mainly who did some knee surgeries and did a few elbow surgeries. Jeez. And that guy didn't even want to touch me because he's like, look, if you ever want to compete again, I'm not the guy to, mm-hmm. to do the surgery. And so he had to come to an appeal process with me. He wrote a letter then he actually showed up. And uh, we had to fight it for four months to wow. get a, a, a right doctor. The only thing the doctors could do for me at that time, uh, which I, I feel like is a, a lot of times they just give away pain pills as, uh, I don't know, it's just so freely mm-hmm. um, and it's not monitored and, um, and they give it out like candy. Uh, I, there's great doctors out there, but there's also doctors that just give it, give it away when people don't really need it. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed it at that time, but then I started to want it because it numbed, or at least I thought it fueled the depression, but at the time it numbed mm-hmm. me, my mind, my memories, the time. And so, uh, it was just a big downward spiral. And then after I didn't need it anymore, I mean, I was, I was already hooked. I was, mm-hmm. Uh, an addict i wasn't like i didn't just like it like my body needed it my mind needed it my, so uh it was i was hooked did you, you talked about the availability of 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 drugs out in you know party atmosphere with being a fighter did i wonder did did it contribute like did that culture did that contribute to you when you did walk away from the sport for four or five years, at least in terms of competition, I don't know what your training was like in terms of competition, and and you started along another path, thinking, "Hey, I need to, I need to get away from from this type of lifestyle and 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 do something else with my mind, my my soul, and my time." Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, I knew I couldn't handle it. Uh, I couldn't handle going back into that world, um, and even though I loved it so much. Like I was like, well, "What am I gonna do? This is my passion." Uh, I love it. It's how I make a living. It's my job. Um, what do I do now? And so I did not have an answer to that question at all. Um, but I, I promised myself I would step away from fighting and parties uh, for a full year. Um, and I would not step back into that world uh, for a year. And then 11 months later, I found myself in the Congo. Mm-hmm. And then it turned in from a year to five years, two months. And I didn't even step in the gym in that time. Wow. Uh, I, I, I did that. That's a little facetious or whatever you call it. But, uh, <laughs> I, um, I, I stepped in and I watched a couple of guys, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't allow myself on the mats. Wow. Um, because I knew if I stepped on the mats that I would, I'd get the bug again and mm-hmm. it'd be like, give me a fight, sign me up. And before you went, ultimately went to the Congo, you know, you, you would, I read you had done volunteer work pretty extensively, at least to compared to someone like 
myself has ever done, gone to different countries. But when did you think, Justin, that I've got to do more? Like I've got to do more than, than what I'm doing in Haiti or Dominica or any, anywhere and, like, and, and go and live, ultimately go live in the Congo? Yeah, so I, I would say that um, I just got this question recently. Like what would you tell someone that wants to get involved in something like you're doing? And I'm like, man, that's, that's a big step. And it didn't, it, I didn't just take some huge leap. Um, it, it started with baby steps. And basically, I think I might be slaughtering, but I think it's an Aristotle quote that said something like, um, no act of kindness, no matter how small, ever goes wasted, something like that. And um, so I kind of just, just started small and got involved at a, a children's hospital, went through night classes, became an official volunteer after a few months of that training, and, uh, and I loved it. And then I started out a homeless rescue mission and uh, then a drug rehab. And then just uh, anywhere I could volunteer, I would volunteer. And so I just kind of had my, had my head on a swivel. I didn't know. I didn't know what to do, and I didn't have a job, but I was just like, you know what? I, I don't want to go spiraling down into depression. I want to do something positive. I want to love people, care about people, help people. So where can I do that? And Yeah, then, uh, yeah, like you said, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda, and then Congo. And Congo, I just fell in love with the people uh, and the pygmies. And there's just this deep connection that I can't really explain mm. I don't know if they can either, um, because me walking in there, I look so different, you know, um, from a different world almost, and uh, and from a different time, uh, and then um, walking in looking like a big vanilla gorilla type Sasquatch guy, um, and yeah, so but it just uh, when I met them and I saw their struggle, and I think I connected with them being. Um, so oppressed and hated and looked down upon just because of what they look like. Or, you know, I, I sit at the lunch table by myself and get pelted in the back of the head with chocolate milk spit wads, or there'd be very premeditated uh, times where I was, you know, in front of the whole school, uh, big pranked and told you're worthless and you should just kill yourself and some brutal stuff. Um, but not anything in comparison to the pygmies who I would say are the, the most bullied people on planet Earth. Tell us, just, yeah, like what what did you what did you encounter? I've I've read a little bit about it just to try to understand, but like what what are what do the pygmies face, Justin? Yeah, so uh, that is that is enough for several books. Yeah, um, but uh, I mean, when I first got there, I met Namboli. Well, when I first got into the village, I met this man that you know his ribs are poking out and he's was born a slave and he's hungry and he's he's thirsty has no clean water and he's coughing up his lung because he's got tuberculosis but no treatment available to him one because he's been a slave and he can't buy any any medicine two um, and they've never been paid money right so and two like if he went to the hospital he wouldn't be treated because he's a pygmy and they say we'll waste our medicine on a pygmy animal and so just turn him away um, and that just wrecked me. It uh, is why I buried a little boy named Andy Bo. He was one and a half years old, and I was actually holding him, or at least I was copping the back of his head and holding his little hand as like the blood came out of his ears. And um, and he died just because of dirty water. Um, and he was neglected treatment first. Uh, his mother, who had lost her husband, 
and lost her other son. So it was just her and Andy Bo. Uh, she went to the hospital and the nurse met her outside and said, you're too dirty to come in here. Uh, and the second time they had the money, they had found a way 85 people um, in that village um, were able to scrap up uh, three and a half dollars of Congolese franc. Mm. And the treatment was $3 for them. The pills were actually a dollar. The one shot cure was $3. Um, and they had a chicken, two dozen eggs, um, and uh, firewood that they tried to take in exchange for some medicine for Andy Bo or the shot. And uh, that's when they said, we won't waste our medicine on you guys. Mm. We're you animals. And so um, it was just, uh, it was, man, it wrecked me. It changed me. I, I <clears throat> that moment forever get my heart. Uh, it's hard to explain. Um, I know people have people that, you know, we all have loved ones that we've lost and, and some very tragically, uh, but this one just seems so unjust. Like, so like his life was cut way too short and it shouldn't have been. Um, and we can do something about it. One, people need clean water and two, they need equal fair treatment. And um, yeah. So I'm meeting Namboli, the first slave I'd ever met that was actually working. And she's, you know, the average height for the men is four foot seven. Uh, so they're, they're a bunch of little guys, but, um, her slave master put, uh, 100 to 120 pound bag of charcoal on her back, um, tied it around her head. Uh, I've got a picture of her doing that work and, um, she would walk about three miles with that on her back and it weighs more than she does. It's taller than she is. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, and this is only 11 months after my training and after her fights and. I'm like, man, I don't know that I could do that um, with that weight or in comparison with weight that's more than me um, and taller than me and go on a three-mile walk and do that two or three times a day. And she got paid in scraps, so it was just absolutely nuts. She got paid in scraps of food. And I know you've worked a lot on, we'd like you to talk about the land and water and the importance of that. I mean, you're, you're generating awareness about the treatment and I'm sure you're doing work on, on, on that front as well. But you've had a lot of, and, and people you work with uh, together have had a lot of remarkable success in, in, um, in building these wells. But yeah, could you, could you tell us more about the, the groups you're working with um, and what you guys have been working on and what you've done with, 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 with the, basically for, you know, a lack of a better term that, that I can think of right now, getting land for the pygmies in which they, yeah. can, they can well have wells and then have cl- just clean water. Yeah, so we couldn't give them clean water or water wells if they didn't own the land first. And so um, they're the first people group of Congo, yet they had zero rights. Um, We've been working to change that on a lot of fronts and mostly through the locals that we work with. Um, And we were able to get back 3,000 acres of land uh, for the pygmies. And so I was able to fund that and – and that was nuts. Um, not me able to fund it. We were able to fundraise it here and then go there and do it. Um, and so uh, 3,000 acres of land, the first time the pygmies have ever owned land of their own. Um, and it was all legally done on the local, state, and national level. Um, and then we came in and we drill wells. And so uh, basically we were able to, in the documentary that's going to be coming out soon, um, Hopefully at Sundance Film Festival this next year. If anyone listening has connections at Sundance, get that on the radar. We're submitting it in September. 
Um, but it's going to be them having their own voice. And I'm so excited about that because they're talking about the land purchases and how that actually we've seen about 1500 people find sustainable and peaceful uh, freedom uh, from their masters. And it's actually brought peace to their, to 10 different villages. And so um, it's been pretty nuts uh, seeing that happen uh, and just trying to be an advocate for them, but seeing the locals do it and, and see the masters even gl- gladly do it. It's a big change for them, but, but they sell parts of the land and we, buy it from them and they benefit financially but then the pygmies get land for the first time ever and it's all uh i don't know it's all written out typed out their thumbprints are on it um so they can't say they didn't sign it but then uh but then it's something that they wanted so we won't work with the slave masters um or you know buy land from them unless this is something that that is part of their idea and so how we go about it community development wise as we try to live with them and listen to them and learn from them. And that way we can come up with a collective way to love them the best. And we bring up issues and bring up questions and everything else in a very strategic way that kind of leads them down a path of like seeing that the slavery is actually, and, and a lot of times the villages that really work with us, they already know that the slavery's turned into more of a burden for them than a blessing for them. And so when they're making, so the slave masters aren't these rich guys, they're making a dollar a day. And so 74 million people in Congo make a dollar to a dollar 25 per day. Then they have to turn around and take care of their family with that. The medical cost that they have to face because of waterborne illness. I mean, for a family of three or four, um, that it's, it's creeping up on $300 of medical cost for medicine uh, for the locals there. And that, so that's almost like spending a, what you got, whenever something tragic happens because you get sick because of dirty water. And so we do the land and then we promise to come in and work with them on getting clean water. And so that right there, the kids are actually passing away, dying of dirty water. Um, And uh, so we're able to bring in clean water. The wives are having to go walk 3.75 miles is the average walk for a woman in Africa. Um, And they're doing it with a 20 liter jerry can, which weighs 44 pounds whenever it's full and so uh they can't have a job or the kids can't go to school because they have to go collect the water or the kids can't go to school because they're sick and they can't be in class and so people it's, it's hard for me to explain all the different things that land water and food and we sort of started doing agriculture um but those three things are absolute game changers uh the most being water water is without a doubt what life revolves around there in the Congo and most parts of Africa. And so to be able to come in and say, Hey, you guys don't have access to clean water right now. You're walking, you're breaking your back doing it. You're, you're literally spending all day long doing it. This will free you up to do other things. Your kids won't be sick. They can go to school. You can go get a job. Um, it's just going to be life transformative for you guys. And so the, from the 3,000 acres, we've been able to go on there and fill 62 water wells now um, in different communities. And it's been incredible, man. We have, an, we have 20 uh, people that are full-time staffed now in the Congo um, under the Fight for the Forgotten Initiative. Uh, they started up, um, uh, well, it's the Ituri Drillers, so that's the water well drilling uh, business side of it there. And then um, there's uh, Access Water and Development Congo. 
And so they have to be legally like established as businesses there. And so um, it's just been really cool to empower the locals uh, to be able to do it for themselves. And so that's what we're all about. It's not me going in there and doing it. Like there's 20 of my absolute heroes that are better men and women than I am that I want to become more like. Um, and if there's one guy on this earth that I could choose to be most like, his name is Benjamin Baringa Coley, and he's our team leader there. And so it's just incredible people leading the charge, and we just get to empower them to keep going. And I, I wanted to get this in there for everybody listening. Uh, he's working with Water 4, and they're trying to raise some money right now to help fund their field partner in Uganda, Young Men Drillers, uh, to bring water to 5,000 people in this one uh, village, I guess it is. And uh, yeah. they, you guys are trying – your goal is 50000 They have a 25000 match, so they're only trying to really raise $25,000, and then they'll get that match to hit their $50,000 goal. And uh, I dropped the link for those of you watching on the Sports Illustrated MMA uh, Facebook page, and for those of you listening later, if you want to go find it so you don't have to remember it, uh, it's in the comments there. But it's water4.org slash dig deeper. And once again, that's water4.org slash dig deeper. And you can donate and try and help fund uh, this this campaign to bring water to these 5,000 people. Yeah, well, thank you for that. That would be absolutely incredible. I've been there to Lecho. Um, it's the village there in Uganda. And the young men drillers, they're the reason we've been able to drill those 62 water wells in the Congo. And the reason they are is because they came and trained us whenever we had in my mind uh, we had drilled seven or sorry zero water wells but it was almost like negative seven or eight because we had failed so many times um and they came as reinforcements because underwater four which fight for the forgotten is an initiative underneath water four we're only one of 44 well drilling teams Mm -hmm. and uh and these guys are incredible they're one of the best powerhouse teams and we're one of them too now but it was because of these guys came they lived with us they trained us actually risked their lives to come to Congo and all three of them uh, were the team leaders, Patrick, B-Tech and Medi. They were almost murdered their first day in Congo. Um, and they decided instead of running away, they decided they were going to lean in and stay and come live in the rainforest with me and my team and sleep on the dirt and under the twig and leaf huts and it rained on and sometimes wake up in the mud and have roaches crawl over your neck and, uh, uh, it was either B-Tech or Medi got, got malaria while they were there. So they literally risked their lives more than once. And if we can empower them with this campaign, dig deeper, man, it's going to transform the lives of 5,000 people. And I think it only comes out to $10 per person. Um, so a $10 investment uh, gives a, a person clean water in the show. And so uh, we're hoping to get, you know, 5,000 people for that clean water. And thank you so much for mentioning that. How many... Um wells does that money get is it one big well is it 10 small wells it's actually five so it's five wells that are actually bigger because they um they're going to be water vending kiosk stations and so basically there's going to be a well and there's going to be a small think of it as like a water tower on the surface Um, and people from the community will come up to it and it's going to be much faster at some strategic locations um and then they're going to put their jerry can underneath and instead of having to use it like a hand pump like in a lot of villages they're just going to have like a tap um but they pay five cents and so the local community will be paying it but um but what that's doing is investing back into repairs and maintenance and then future wells for lecho and so uh they're investing right back in their own community 
and it's all participatory. So that way, uh, our mindset is that um, opportunity is greater than charity. A charity can be great, but opportunity is always better. And so the whole, you can give a man a fish and feed him for a day, or teach him how to fish and feed him for a lifetime. So we're teaching that community the importance of buying your own water because they're even buying dirty water right now in Litchell. I've been there. They fill up these little baggies and boy, little boys that should be in school are walking around with like a, a, a waiter serving tray um, and it's just got bags of water on it and people buy this dirty water so they don't have to walk so far to go get the dirty water. And so to pay five cents for a five-gallon jerry can, very, very affordable there. But then as that builds up and 5,000 people are using it each and every day, that's going to go on to fund. I think I think it could actually fund another five. I think each one of these vending kiosks can fund another well each year it's in service. So um, it's it's going to go a, a lot longer than – or it's going to go farther than just a $10 investment. It's going to go farther than just giving one person clean water because next year it's going to give another person and the year after that. That's just incredible how far – so little for us here and most of us here in America can go somewhere else in the world. Did, did any of this catch you? I mean, were you, were you at all aware of, of, of the depth of, of, of the need there or the opportunity to, to, I guess, to, to help before you went there, even in any preparations or, or did it completely, did it completely take you by surprise, Justin? Man, I would say, I would say yes and no. Hmm. Um, Yes, I knew a little bit about it because then I started researching and started reading, and I had like uh, three very vivid like nights I can think of that I uh, I didn't sleep. I just was researching on my phone on the computer, looking up documentaries in French that had subtitles where I'd read French articles because that's Congo's national language mm. or Swahili, and I'm using Google Translate and I'm trying to read about it, and um, and so I was. I was consumed by it, but then when I got there, it's, it's, it's so different, right? You, you read about it and it's head knowledge. Um, you hear about it and maybe it, you know, sticks with you for a little bit longer, but whenever you see it and experience it or feel it, um, and live it, whenever you kind of share in the suffering and it's a, it's a deep heart knowledge that, that, that you're not going to forget about. And so I think, I think it's funny sometimes people say like, you know, you're uh, not trying to pat myself on the back because these guys are so incredible that are in the field, but I can't help but be passionate about it. Mm. Last year alone, Water 4 empowered 396 people in Africa to have jobs that they get to be the solution to their very own problem. They're the change in their own community. So the whole Gandhi quote, be the change you want to see in the world. Mm. 396 guys are being able to do that. And last year alone, they drilled 690 water wells. And they were able to serve over 172,000 people. And so far since inception, which is less than 10 years, they've been able to serve over a million people. And so I just, I love it. I see it as the actual solution to the problem and I've lived the problem and I've gotten sick from dirty water myself. Yeah. I've gotten parasites and amoebas and worms and uh, stuff that's pretty gross. Um, but, but for our culture, but there it's a daily reality. Right. And so, so I, I can't help but be passionate and hopefully be a spokesperson. And, and before I forget it about that campaign you mentioned, thank you for doing that. If someone decides that they can dig deep and they can give $75 or more, 
um, they're going to get a T-shirt that we created. It's called Dig Deeper on it. It's got the Water 4 logo, and it's got our guys on the back, actually, the Young Men Drillers, and they're drilling a well. Um, and so I uh, just wanted to mention that before I forgot it. Justin, what made you decide to, to, to fight again? You've been, you've been active again in the last few years, and, and has it helped you generate awareness for this work? Has it, has it made it, has it been difficult splitting your time and having to, to go back to, you know, to this other career and, and taking away? Has it been both? I mean, I'm just curious how you're balancing it and what, what got you to the point where you were going to fight again and, and how you've been balancing those responsibilities since. Yeah. So the, the balancing act has been, it's been a process. It's been tough to learn, but, um, I'm one of those guys that's all in. And so uh, whenever it's fight camp, I'm all in. And then I feel like, oh, man, am I forgetting some of the guys in the field um, that are actually doing the work because I don't want to do that. So we brought we brought my right-hand man there, my my our team leader in Congo, who's much better and smarter than I am, speaks seven languages fluently, wow. but he's from a little bitty village, but speaks Russian and French and English and a ton of different local languages uh, or four different local languages. And uh, – Man, we were able to bring him, and he was in my corner for uh, my fight down there in Houston at the Toyota Center whenever Kimbo and Ken fought, mm-hmm. and uh, or, or Kimbo and Dada and Ken and Hoist. So that was really cool that he got to be there and part of it and see why I'm hmm. why I'm coming back, why I'm fighting, and he would, was able to go back and tell them, uh, you know, I'm fighting for them. I'm getting to speak their language in the cage, and I'm able to tell all the people watching about what we're doing and then they know that more funding is coming in and it's making it more sustainable there and so uh man the last fight 1.1 million people tuned in and watched and we were flooded uh you know it helps whenever you perform better uh than a you know than a boring decision but uh you know getting getting two uh big throws and then a, a choke out in about two and a half minutes um we were flooded with over a thousand messages uh, of encouragement and people who donated and so that's that's why i'm back i'm i'm back because you know being able to raise awareness and when the pygmies told me everyone else calls us the forest people but we call ourselves the forgotten and they said we don't have a voice can you help us have one it was like oh i like you guys accepted me as family you know they call me Mabuti Mangbo, and that literally just means the big pygmy um and so i want to be the big pygmy and i want to be Efeosa, my immediate family there that that really adopted me and Efeosa means the man who loves us and i feel like uh the best way i can love them is to spend a few very strategic years five years seven year investment um to make sure that they're not forgotten that people know who they are um and then that we are setting us up on a really strong foundation uh, to keep this work going for not just five years, but the next 50 years or, or hopefully, you know, after I pass away, someone else picks up the baton and keeps going or, you know what? They already have if something happens to me. I love it. Like our guys there, 20 of them or 20 in Congo or 400 internationally. They're going to keep this thing going because it's theirs. It's ownership. It's not my initiative. It's not water force nonprofit. This is, that's why we set them up as their own entity in country because they're proud of it because it's their way that they get to provide for their family. It's their way that they get to answer their own problems that their government's not answering that they have to wait for people from the West to come answer that then don't do it in the appropriate way. Cause they don't know the country or the culture. Um, 
you know, or the dynamic there. And so they get to do it in the most culturally sound way for their community. Such an incredible story. I, I, I'm trying to picture him going. Bellator is known for their production value. I'm trying to picture him going back uh, and explaining what he saw and just trying to wrap like to to convey that is so hard to I'm trying to think how I would put it into words. And I don't know how I would be able to put it into words to somebody who's never seen it or would have no understanding. Yeah. Well, he's, he's a brilliant guy. So I know he figured it out, but, uh, but, um, but I would say though, you know, it was his first time in the U S and he had never been even, uh, even to a movie theater. So we took him to uh, IMAX and that wow. just blew his mind. Um, well, actually we, we took him to a normal one first, and then he's like, this has to be the first theater he's ever been in. This has to be the world's largest TV screen. It just has to be. <laughs> it's like, actually, no. And so then the next day we took him to an IMAX. And so it just uh, blew his mind. If he comes back and, and uh, take him to a 3D movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't oh, that, that's that. good. Yeah, we took him to IMAX. Uh, uh, it was the Revenant, so oh, <laughs> that, that would be just so perfect with it being, you know, <laughs> not so much talking, and then there's also kind of the Native American culture in there and hunting and different things. So mm-hmm. it was it was the perfect movie for him. And Justin, now that you're back in MMA and back in in in, in big time MMA, and like you said, you know, you're you're back to winning. You know, you're you're back to winning. You're back to winning in big stages. Uh, you know. Uh, all this stuff is, I'm sure, still there for you, right? All the stuff that can lead you to, to a dark place yourself. Like, how, how has this been? This journey back into um, to sport you love, but a, a world outside of the training room, outside of the cage, that can often lead to just a lot of d- destructiveness. What's what's kept you? How, how have you been doing? And what's kept you where? Hopefully, where you want to be. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking, man. Um, because uh, because that is an important one of the most important questions I can ask myself. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I have a great wife um, who is an incredible support system. Uh, she's she's amazing. Um, and then I also have a great team around me, uh, one being Water 4 on pretty much a daily basis. And uh, that's why I even moved to Oklahoma, but also Rafael Lovato Jr. If there's ever been a guy I've ever been around that's been a true martial artist, um, it's him and how hungry he is to learn and to teach and how obsessed he is with all the aspects of MMA. Um, so feeding off him and his aspirations to be Bellator champion, you know, I'm looking at uh, at my bathroom mirror, and I've got a picture of me with my hand raised uh, from this last fight, and I've got two belts pictured on there. I won't say which ones they are, but uh, <laughs> definitely one's a Bellator belt on there, and uh, it says Bellator champion at the top. And um, so that's that's my goal. Um, and to get there, I have to make sure that uh, I don't fall back into the same lifestyle that I, I was living. And um, so I've had a couple injuries. And when I get those, you know, the doctor's like, oh, you're an athlete. Oh, you're a fighter. Oh, you got hurt. Here, here's a bunch of medicine. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, I can't take that. And um, so just the opioids, I have to stay away from. Mm-hmm. That was my biggest struggle. Um, and I would say, man, like I've... I've I haven't been perfect. I'm a work in progress. Where um, there's been a, drinking was never too bad for me. I could have a drink, one and done. That was easy for me. It wasn't my my thing uh, before I left the sport. And then there's been a couple times where I've had to catch myself and be like, mm, I don't know if I can if I can do this anymore. Mm. So, uh, but the the drugs have been uh, it's been it's been uh, awesome to see myself kind of get farther and farther away from 
from the dude I used to be. That's awesome. It's it's good to hear, man. It's uh, already just because you're you've been so open with what you've lived and what you've seen others live and have lived with them. We you know are already feeling like like we like you know like we're getting to know you, and that takes real courage to to share that story. We, we just can't say how much we appreciate the time you've been taking with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I appreciate you guys. This was this was really fun. Um, uh, I, I appreciate you guys are awesome. Uh, at, at what you do and uh, the listeners thank you for taking the time to listen and uh, just one little reminder would be yeah that that website waterford.org slash dig deeper or if you guys want to follow me on social on twitter and instagram it's at the big pygmy and facebook's just justin ren w-r-e-n thank you again and uh, we would like to encourage everybody to, to go donate and help out uh the ten dollars feed or for one person i think is a, an important statistic there so if you have anything and you have some spare cash and some time please take a moment out to donate and we'll be in touch justin we'll, we'll have you on anytime you want man best of luck with hey. training and uh we'll talk to you real soon sir yeah maybe after my next fight gets announced or once i'm on my way to that bellator absolutely we'll, as soon as that fight gets announced we'll bug you and we'll have you on again hey that'd be awesome thank you guys thank you thanks justin all right see ya Wow. Incredible story. Incredible person. Uh, he's got a great book out too. I don't know if anybody listening has gone and read it. Um, obviously the story's kind of changed since the uh, book's been written as, you know, he's continually working mm -hmm. in this area. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it's got a lot of the, the background and, you know, just incredibly interesting and so selfless, like to be, to sacrifice time away and to make this such a priority, yeah. you know, especially as we're watching um, people in custom made suits, talked smack to each other for right. nine figures right, uh, right. you wish there was a little sliver of that you know think about how many wells they would get if yeah. even you know less than one percent of that was going to uh, <laughs> to fight for the forgotten so it's very very true yeah it's uh, pretty amazing because yeah, i mean j for folks that maybe don't follow bellator as closely uh or didn't see the the season that uh ultimate fighter that justin was on I mean, he's he's got he's got the skills, the record, and the age and the youth. Even now, after he took basically five years off, from, I think 2010-2015, um, to be a real force. Like when he talks about wanting to win belts, uh, it's it's no idle threat. The guy is a, is a, is a top level fighter. He lost, I think, like a majority decision to Roy Nelson, for example, when he was very very young in the sport and and on the Ultimate Fighter. And and Roy obviously is a guy who had a long career against the best of the best. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, this guy is, I guess what I'm trying to say is he's, he's full in busy. He's not like a part-time MMA guy or a lower level guy who maybe has no other way to like stay busy or relevant. He, he's, he, he took a time away from us as surging of a heavyweight career as it can get in the sport to do, to start this other path. And he's kept it up as he's come back and very, very impressive. Uh, there's, it just makes me feel like uh, it reminds me of, of how many hours there are in a day in a life as short and finite as, as as life is. You can really do a lot, just like this young guy has done. And he started this, started doing this amazing work when he was you know his early twenties, basically. It's just it's remarkable. Yeah, Justin, um, you know, super inspiring. And like you men mentioned, him talking about making a run at the heavyweight title isn't ridiculous. He's three and zero. He's no. undefeated in Bellator. He's no. thirteen and two. No. Key, important part there undefeated in bellator right right and uh you know he's got three fights only in the past three years but you know they don't have a champion yep. and 
I mean, this is a guy who's undefeated and has the record. And now and I it's think a tough matchup for a lot of the guys I got there. And a now there's, you know, there's names that are in the division who can draw attention to yep. them. You know, your yep. Matt Mitrione's, your Fedor's, mm -hmm. the, you know, whatever UFC heavyweights come over in the next couple of months. Yeah, whatever uh, five, top Travis five guys Brown. they let him like, come over. Yeah, Right. Totally. So, you know, there's opportunity, but he can he could make a, a run at this heavyweight title if they ever decide to to get that title back in yeah. place. And I yeah. don't know why they're dragging their feet. And if, and if they don't, then uh, he can make a run in any real title, in my opinion. So, yeah, no, that was awesome. Way, way to go getting him on, Mike. That was one of, if not the uh, most favorite interviews we've had so far in this, in this past year. Yeah, we could definitely got to stay in touch with him. Little little uh, MMA-related conversation, but not so much uh, Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather for one week. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll we'll take start it, man. that up next week. <laughs> yeah, and we'll start it up at a very particular bet, man. I uh, – I'm not very interested in, in the press conference. I mentioned a lot of other parts of that. So as you guys know, we'll speak our mind. We'll, we'll take the, whatever angle we want to take on something. And I was so happy that we got to talk uh, with this guy and, and take this type of angle. And uh, thank you again for everyone tuning in to watch. This brings us to the kind of the end of the show. And uh, for those of you watching, make sure you go into iTunes to subscribe. You can subscribe so you can listen to it later if you can't watch. And if you're listening on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, TuneIn, Blogging, Blog Talk Radio, you can actually watch it live if you want to. Sports Illustrated MMA Facebook page every Wednesday, 3 Eastern, 2 Central, 12 out on the West Coast. Right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Just one more time, I'll remind you to donate at water4.org slash dig deeper.